We Mexicans don't consider ourselves to be racist, but in fact, there is a really classist and racist uh, kind of society. And we need to address that conversation. I think that's what literature works also, to name things and break the silence, because in silence, uh, atrocities can happen. And if we address them, it's, it's always a first step to beginning a conversation and a change. Welcome back to Portals, a virtual taste of the International Literature Festival Dublin, taking you beyond your radius. I'm Kaylin Hogan, and today I'll be speaking with Fernanda Melchor, whose engulfing new novel Hurricane Season is translated by Sophie Hughes and published by Fitzgeraldo Editions. It is shortlisted for the yet-to-be-announced International Booker Prize. Fernanda, so glad to have you with us today. Thanks so much for, for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be uh, able to talk to you. So tell us uh, where you are right now and how have things been over the last few weeks with, with the pandemic and everything that's happening? Well, uh, I'm actually now in a city called Puebla in the center valley of uh, Mexico, very close to the, to the capital, to uh, Mexico City, Ciudad de Mexico. I've been locked from, I think, more than eight weeks now, and oh, it's been okay. I managed to finish a new novel, so that was fine, uh, I guess. And now I'm slowly beginning to realize all the losses, you know, and the, this process of uh, acknowledge uh, what's been lost, what's going to be lost through the years. So it's it's been difficult, but you know, it's something that we all we are all living uh, experimenting at the same time we're still under lockdown here ourselves yeah and, and very sorry that you couldn't make it over to ireland but i was really struck by some of the irish connections and as i began to to read your book um nicole flattery the brilliant irish short story writer um has called the book highly original and described you as someone unafraid to confront the unspeakable uh, and you also have a, a quote from Yeats from his poem Easter 1916 in the beginning of the book, uh, which speaks about the terrible beauty of the violent struggle for independence in Ireland. Uh, what what inspired you to include the, the Yeats quotes at, at the start and what parallels were there for you? Uh, it's, a, it's a strange story, actually, because I stumbled into this poem a few years ago when I was trying to improve my knowledge uh, of poetry, because I'm not a natural poetry reader. And I had this habit of logging daily into this webpage of the Poetry Foundation. And well, you know, it's amazing. And uh, I, I read the poem of the day, every day. So one day, uh, there it was, Easter uh, 1916. And of course, I had, the, I had to read the accompanying essay because uh, to understand the context of the poem, because it's totally foreign for us in, in Mexico. And I was in a spell by the rhythm of the poem, by its allegories and the oxymoronic nature of that refrain, a terrible beauty is born. So at that time I was trying to figure out what kind of novel I wanted to, to write with hurricane season. I mean, um, at that time, uh, the novel didn't exist yet, only this intention of mine to write a story about violence, about love, hate, criminal passion, and that part of Jit's poem helped me understand what I wanted to do, uh, because uh, my intention to place the poem as an epigraph was, uh, I think, ironic uh, overall, because I wanted to talk about misogyny, I wanted to talk about femicide, you know, the murder of, of women. And when I started to explore that phenomena, I realized that for many men, for many young men, femicide is sort of a liberating act, you know, like, like this act of finally letting go all the hate, all the anger, all, all the, the frustration in their lives. And, and it's uh, like this anger, long repressed, that uh, becomes like an insurrection against 
women, mothers, wives, lovers. Um, so in fact, there, there, I think there isn't no terrible beauty in, in murder, uh, in, the, in the killing of women, in the killing of, of young girls, trans women. There's only horror. And I wanted to explore that idea by overlapping these, these verses. Who, who speaks about a beautiful insurrection. So I, I don't know if that worked out finally, uh, but uh, the poem is amazing. Uh, last night, uh, uh, me and my husband, we were listening to it in a Liam Neeson uh, uh, reading. And oh, wow. it's just beautiful and has a beautiful rhythm. It's, it's amazing. And, and it made me close to, to Irish culture uh, a little bit inadvertently. And... You know, Mexico uh, has a, a, a um, has very. Um, we're very fond of the Irish people. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the St. Patrick's Battalion, that story. No. St. Patrick's Battalion was a unit of almost 200 uh, immigrant European immigrants, mostly Irish, that fought as part of the Mexican army against the United States during the Mexican-American War uh, in the middle of the uh, 19th century. So in many ways, this battalion was responsible for the toughest battles uh, uh, against the, the US. And um, there's lots of Mexicans who still acknowledge the great aid that the, uh, these few hundred Irishmen, uh, known as the San Patricios, Los San Patricios, or Los Colorados Valientes, the, the brave uh, Reds, uh, led to the Mexican people in an hour of need and is sort of a symbol of interna international solidarity. So besides also uh, uh, loving drinking beer, also uh, Mexicans and Irish, I think, have lots in common. <laughs> besides religion, yeah. <laughs> we do, we do. A lot a lot of parallels. Yeah, religion, absolutely. And I think religion is is also a force in this book. And I think very interesting how it's, you know, kind of paralleled with that that power of folklore and, you know, fairy tales. And we definitely, you know, have mixed in Ireland as well, you know, yeah. Catholicism with that more mythical world as well. Um, I, you know, I was, I, I think the novel is in, incredibly powerful. And it, you know, it, focuses on the figure of of the witch um the you know the book begins with her disfigured body being found um and immerses us in the subconscious of of la matosa and individuals who are affected by or implicated in her murder um and i think if you don't mind it would be great to have you read a, an extract from the book before we we start the discussion okay one day on her way home from school Norma found a little paperback book with a ripped cover and fairy tales for children of all ages written across it. And on opening at random, the first thing she saw was a black and white illustration of a little hunchback crying terrified while a coven of witches with bad wings stabbed the hunch on his back. And the illustration was so strange that ignoring the time and the ominous rain clouds, ignoring the dishes waiting to be washed, and her siblings, who needed feeding before their mother got home from the factory, Norma sat down at the booth stop to read the whole story, because at home there was never time to read anything, and even if there were, she wouldn't be able to, with her siblings' racket, the blare of the TV, and her mother constant yelling, not to mention Pepe's fooling around or the piles of homework that awaited her each night after washing the pots which she herself had used at noon before leaving for school. And so she pulled the hood of, of her coat over her and folded her legs under her skirt, and she read the whole story from start to finish, the tale of the two hunchbacks. That's what the fairy tale was called, and it was about a hunchback who lost his way one evening in the woods close to his home, dark and sinister woods where witches were said to meet to do their evil deeds, and that's why the little fellow was so frightened to find himself lost there, unable to find his way home, wandering blindly as night felt, until suddenly he spied a fire in the distance, and thinking it, must, it might be a campfire, he ran towards it, convinced that he'd been safe. So imagine his surprise when he arrived at the clearing with the giant, 
with a gigantic fire only to realize it was a witch's sabbath, a coven of horrifying witches with bad wings and claws instead of hands, all dancing around the blazing fire in the most macabre fashion while they sang. Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, and they were cackling their terrible witchy cackles and howling up at the full moon. That's perfect. Thank you. Uh, I think that that really speaks to uh, what we were talking about the the power of of sort of fairy tale and and folklore and myth. Um, it, Norma, I think, is a is really important. Um, person within the book, uh, of course, a, a very young woman who's at 13. Um, and this fairy tale that she finds is the way that, that she learns about her body, about, you know, menstruation and pregnancy. Um, and the, the figure of the witch as well is a sort of source of knowledge for, for women in, in the village, you know, where they go and, and speak about, you know, the things that are happening to their bodies. The, the witch um, provides Norma with, um, with an abortion. Uh, and is, you know, a source of information and support to women, particularly in terms of, you know, reproductive health. Um, how important was it for you to to sort of explore this this power of sort of of fairy tale and folklore within the book um, through, you know, direct reference to this the Sunday Seven in, in that passage and also, you know, within the figure of the witch herself? Yeah, I, I wanted to explore... Uh, the, the realities of, um, uh, of, of you know, of, of uh, what women go through, through this kind of a small mirror that's the, the, the fairy tale that's inside the novel. Uh, you know, that story actually exists, the, the, uh, the, the tale of the hun two hunchbacks. Uh, it was, well, there are many versions. I think there's even a Japanese version of it. Uh, in Mexico, it's, uh, it came through Spain, I think. It, it's, there's a Spanish version. And Carmen Lira, a, a Costa Rican um, writer, did one uh, the, in the last century, uh, at the end of the last century. And that's the one I took. And uh, I always been fascinated by, uh, of, for the refrain of the, of the Wednesday, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, uh, Thursday and Friday and Saturday six, you know. And, and in Mexico, uh, the final phrase, uh, Sunday seven, Sunday seven in Mexico means unintentional pregnancy. When you go out with your Sunday seven, that means that you did something that, uh, that you didn't really want it to do. So uh, you, you, you end up with an unwanted pregnancy. And in fact, that was that story with that name actually created the, the character of Norma in my mind. I, I read a news story uh, about the killing of a witch in a rural area, in a small village uh, around Veracruz in 2012. And it was a very small, you know, uh, almost um, uh, really not known newspaper in a very uh, forgotten area, a story that uh, made the, the journalist never took the, uh, the, the opportunity to, to follow that story. So I kind of never knew what happened at the end. So I decided to invent it, no, and and because it, it was very difficult to to do um, uh, a research, uh, proper research as a journalist in that area at that time because of the presence of um, organized crime, narcos, and uh, several groups that were battling battling that area. It was very uh, dangerous, and as a woman, it, it was also very dangerous to travel alone to that part and. So I read that and I said, this is a great story. I mean, it's horrible, no? But at the same time, I thought that it was very interesting to get to know what's in the heart of a crime that's being motivated by witchcraft. So I was trying to figure out what does that mean in Mexico nowadays, you know? What does that mean in the world nowadays? And, you know, in Veracruz, we have this um, mix of uh, beliefs uh, there, there's the Catholic, you know, roots uh, by the Spaniards. There's this uh, uh, indigenous religion that still pervades because of the uh, indigenous presence. And there's also this important African root 
that's uh, that's very present also in Veracruz culture. So I think there's some um, uh, really strong uh, ties between Veracruz and parts uh, of uh, the Caribbean as uh, Cuba, for, for example, or San Juan, Puerto Rico, or New Orleans. There's a vibe, you know, that goes around in this part of the Gulf of Mexico. And I wanted to talk about that, about this spiritual life that mixes not only, um, how do you say, like this particular beliefs and, and system of beliefs, but also practices, you know, of witchcraft, but also a little bit of Santeria, a little bit of uh, what it's called Satanism, a little bit of uh, traditional healing, because uh, Brujeria in Mexico is a great part of ethnobotanicals also. So I wanted all that because I was born in Veracruz and lived there for 30 years, so I wanted to reflect that in the figure of the witch, who also, it's a, I think it's a great symbol to talk about the power of women, you know, the power of women, and at the same time, the fear that women elicit. Uh, I wanted to reflect that in the, in, the, in the novel. You have said that you originally wanted to write this book as nonfiction, and in the acknowledgements, you pay respect to the work of two journalists who were murdered in Mexico in 2012. How did the work of journalists inform the novel? I really wanted to write a book from, uh, you know, in the key of uh, reality, in the key of realism, in the key of uh, uh, nonfiction. And it was a very difficult time in Veracruz at that time. I'm not saying violence is over, completely over. I mean, it's different now, but not exactly uh, so, so different. I mean, uh, in 2012, I was already living in Puebla. I, I had left Veracruz, not because of the violence, uh, but uh, I wanted to do master studies. And uh, unfortunately, in Veracruz, th there wasn't any option that, really, uh, I, that, I, that I liked. So I came to Puebla to study art and aesthetics. And my first major is in journalism. But I've never been a journalist per se. Uh, I've never worked in a media uh, like that. But I knew a lot of, uh, of, of journalists. And I really respect uh, what a lot of journalists are trying to do in Mexico, given the conditions of uh, violence that exist. Uh, I think it's a very brave job they are trying to do. And at the same time, there, there are also journalists that are not as uh, honest, you know. Uh, a lot of them work for the narcos, kind of a social communication for narcos. So it is a very difficult uh, and complex um, a panorama uh, of journalism in Mexico. Mostly uh, it's a very, it's a not well-paid uh, job, it's dangerous. Uh, sometimes the journalist doesn't have like uh, professional preparation, you know, uh, they, they are not journalists per se. They, they began that work because it was, uh, something uh, easy to do. So, uh, uh, for example, when I when I studied journalism, I never received any information about security protocols. I learned them later, no. But but it's it's a profession, uh, a really difficult profession in Mexico, and very beautiful also if you if you have a a, um, a vocation, if you have like uh, the intention to to help people through, through journalism. So I really wanted to do uh, a nonfiction, you know, my own in cold blood. Uh, and, and we in Mexico and Latin America, we have a very strong tradition of uh, nonfiction literary uh, books. Uh, there's um, a Rodolfo Walsh with uh, Operación Masacre. That's an amazing book that talks about the, the dictatorship in, in Argentina. Uh, uh, an amazing book. But at the same time, it was uh, I was scared, you know. Uh, as I told you, I was scared to to go there by myself. And at the end, I maybe to console myself because at that time it was not only dangerous to go to Veracruz. I also was um, my my job at that time was being a wife, being a, a mother full time, uh, a stay at home mom. So I had to, you know, to to make a decision of, of what I wanted to do. And at the end, I decided that I could explore that subject also from fiction. 
that I that as I, I, I was thinking of a writer like Kafka, you know, who had, you know, this horrible job, uh, almost knew no people, had this problem with family, had no girlfriend, and still, we could say that he had no life, you know, but still he had a very rich inner life, and he created a whole literary work that talks about the realities of that time, the rising of, uh, you know, uh, of... Uh, dictatorship, uh, totalitarianism, uh, and, and fascism. And, and I said, why? I can be uh, also a, a, a housewife and also write deep uh, fiction. So I started working through, through that material. You know, the, um, the news story of uh, what other journalists were publishing about that time, my recollections of that time. And I already had done... Um, uh, a short story essay a book collection of uh, collection of stories book it's called uh, this is not miami or aquino's miami about veracruz and violence so i kind of knew the the scenery the the territory you know i think that um it's it's so important in the book uh the way that you know, you give a voice really to the the subconscious of the people that you're writing about. You know, it's a very uh, unique and, and experimental approach, really, the form of the book itself. Uh, there are no paragraphs. It's, it's really, um, you know, separated into chapters, but we are immersed in the kind of stream of consciousness of, uh, you know, various people uh, involved um, in this story. And, I, you know, it, it creates a very very immersive experience for the reader where we are just sort of, you know, towed along in the flow of, of uh, the character's experience. How did you come to, to this form in the book? And, and you know, what sort of, did you um, experiment with different forms before you landed on this? Uh, and what made this the right, the right form for you? Uh, well, um, I must say it, it was born out of necessity. Uh, I I wasn't trying to be you know uh, um, a s smart person and saying yeah I'm gonna outsmart everyone and do this crazy form. I put readability always before anything because in my whole life as a as a reader I've always loved the page turners. You know these simple stories that are written in a simple language and and you can stop reading. I I don't know novels like Stephen King's that you can go page over page and and not get bored by a by story so i value that but also value like you know strong uh literary models uh i value also risk and i value also experimentation so uh, i had to try uh, to find a balance so i wanted to to write about a murder so i for me the main question was what's in the heart of a, of a crime what's in the heart of a murder against a witch, against a woman, what's in the heart of, of this uh, horrible um, uh, act. I had a victim and I had the perpetrators. You know, I had the scenery already, Veracruz, uh, the rural areas, the cane fields. And I started to ask myself, what will the people of this town would say about the victim and the crime, you know? So I, I stopped, like, I started, like, listening to these uh, voices of women gossiping around. Like, you know, they know the victim for their whole lives and they know the perpetrators also. And they will say who were they and what happened and they even contradict each other. And I started writing that, you know, like testimonies. Like, I was, like, the secretary of the of the trial, you know, and they were talking their testimony. But at, at the end, I didn't want the, the novel to be like a recollection of testimonies. I, I didn't really like that kind of form. So I was trying to figure out a way of integrating those testimonies, those voices of the women, because for me it was very difficult to uh, get close to the heart of the crime, to to grab the, the murderer and grab the victim. The victim was dead and the murderer, uh, how could I trust that he told me the truth about the murder? So I began from the outside to the inside, no? like a, you know, this, this centrifugal force of the hurricane. And I thought that was the best way to present the story also. 
And uh, I was trying so hard to find a narrative voice that could integrate all these voices and gossip. And a really good friend of mine, who's also a writer, Martin Solares, I was talking to him about this trouble I had that I couldn't find the narrative voice that I like. And he told me, oh, you should read The Autumn of the Patriarch of uh, Gabriel García Márquez, El Otoño del Patriarca, in Español. Uh, so I went to The Autumn of the Patriarch and found this amazing voice. I was also a reader of uh, Gabriel García Márquez, but I was more familiarized with other works like uh, Cien Años de Soledad, 100 Years of Solitude, or uh, Loves in Chimes of Cholera, I think. There are, there are more like known uh, uh, works of uh, Gabriel García Márquez. And I found out that The Autumn of the Patriarch is his... For him, it was his best book, but it was not so known because it's a really a lesson of narrative uh, rhythm. You know, it's, it's a beautiful book written in a, in a magnificent pace, uh, almost without any uh, silences or spaces. And I learned a, lo a lot from that book and I found what I needed. I, I found like this narrative voice that is like a force that takes all these other voices and integrates them. And that allowed me to be inside the mind of the characters, but at the same time to be able to observe them from the outside. Because it's like, you know, it's like the glue of the whole novel. Without this narrative voice, it will be only like uh, pieces of voices. And I didn't want that, that the novel to be like that. And it, it does, it creates a very forceful flow throughout the book that, that makes it a real page turner. Uh, but I think it also does an important... Um, job within the book of allowing us to see both both Norma and the witch um, in some regards as they are perceived by by men you know as sort of as as victims but also to show um, you know the sort of agency of these women as well uh, their their power their desire even in situations of violence and abuse and female desire I think is a very important focus within the book the power of it the threat of it to you know the dominant structures, the patriarchy, um, even the sort of economic structure, female desire is, is a very dang dangerous and forceful uh, thing within this book. Um, and so, you know, was that something that you you sort of wanted to, to show? Was that important to, to sort of to show these the agency of women um, within sort of a, a moment of violence as well? Of course, I, I thought I felt I had a depth with uh, strong uh, women characters, because my first novel, who hasn't been translated to, to English, uh, it's called Falsa Liebre, something like uh, false hair, uh, like hair, you know, like the, the animal. Falsa Liebre was a novel that uh, um, uh, talked about the life, uh, one day in a life of four um, young boys in Veracruz, right? And so I kind of thought that I was missing something because I decided that I wanted to write about the four of uh, uh, the life of four guys. So uh, I afterwards uh, I, I was beginning to read about feminism, and I felt disappointed a little bit by myself because I said uh, I think I think that I have no interesting uh, women characters in this novel, and I said well it's okay because. Uh, it's also feminist being a woman and writing about whatever you like. So I think, okay, I'll, I'll forgive myself, but I'll try harder the next book. And I, I was also, I was trying to figure out how to talk about a lot of realities. Also, um, I became a stepmom at that time when I was writing Hurricane Season. Uh, so I was uh, raising my stepdaughter and that was huge for me, you know, to being uh, responsible of, uh, of, uh, of the education of a young girl and that kind of confront me with a lot of my education uh, when I was a girl and I really didn't want her to to live to, to grow up in a world where being a woman is shameful where being a woman it's being a second-class citizen you know in Mexico is such a you know difficult still uh, fight um, and that makes me think a lot of what it means being a woman, how we women uh, reproduct the, the machismo and the misogyny around us, how we inadvertently uh, collaborate with, you know, patriarchy to... 
and, and I wanted to talk about that. Also, uh, for me, it was important not to talk only about women as victims, of course, but also women as victimaries to talk about the, vi the small violence, big or small violence that we women also reproduce and do in, in our families. For me, it was very important to have like a, like a panorama of, uh, of, of different uh, acti attitudes uh, in, in women's sexuality. There's, for example, uh, the attitude of Norma, who's a girl whose uh, sexual uh, approach is, has more to do with looking for affection that looking for sex you know she's a child still a child who's who's awakening to sexuality but at the same time she's so helpless and and so unloved that she mistakes sexuality for love she mistakes um, uh, the language of tenderness for the language of passion as uh, this uh, psychoanalyst um, Ferenci uh, who was a disciple from Freud used to say that when there's sexual abuse, there's an adult that, uh, that think the language of tenderness of the child is a language of passion, but it is not, it's a language of tenderness. So there's the, uh, for, for example, Chabela, who's a woman that's um, uh, uh, lived through her whole life by uh, prostitution, by prostituting herself. Uh, she started her sexual life by being exploited and now she's exploited another woman and she thinks that's a perfect solution. And there's Yesenia, for example, who doesn't really have like a sex life, at, it seems, right? But his whole libido is focused in hating his cousin, her cousin, right? And in, in defending an idea of uh, feminist, f f uh, an idea of uh, femininity that's really strange too. And, and I wanted to talk about the forces and the affections that, are, that affect the women's life through several generations and, and presenting them as contradictory as they are. I think as well, it, it shows, you know, the, the sort of economic, uh, you know, aspect of, of tr transactional sex and, and the pressures of, of, of poverty and, and um, the sort of patriarchal structures. But, you know, Chabela particularly is interesting because she she sort of liberates herself in many ways through through sex work. Uh, she becomes, you know, economically autonomous as uh, she owns her house. She you know, she can do what she wants um, because of the work that she does. And yet her sort of weakness is her her love for, for her husband. Uh, and in a similar way, I, the, the, the witch is seen to have this, you know, power because of the, the wealth that the men believe she has. And she is also in some ways, you know, um, undone by her affection for, for Luis Me. Um, and so I think it talks, it speaks to those structures. Uh, how important was it for you to, to talk about, you know, the sort of, the violence, I guess, of poverty as well within the book, um, and not just sexual violence, but the, the violence of those economic structures. Yeah, in a way, it's something that really worries me, but at the same time, I don't think that um, having like a political agenda in, in a book, it's a good idea. It, 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 I think it's, it could be really boring, you know, pamphletary and if you really want to read politics in literature, go read Sartre and bore yourself because <laughs> I don't think it's like, you know, like like uh, powerful literature, like the, at least the literature that I want to be confronted with. So I, I wanted to introduce these this subjects and talk about a reality, uh, 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 not only uh, uh, of sex as a transaction, but sex as a symbol, you know? Uh, I think it has a lot to do with uh, when I was in Veracruz, when I was a teenager, I used to hang uh, around with um, with a group of uh, people of my age, you know, teenagers. We used to hang around in a, in a park and maybe smoke pot and drink beer and, you know, whatever. And uh, they, were all, they were all my age, more or less. And I was really surprised to find out that some of these guys, uh, sometimes they will go out at night and stay in that same park and uh, were picked up by, by men, by older men. And the, the weirdest thing for me was that they thought they were taking advantage of those uh, older guys, you know? 
in fact, it was the it was the opposite because they were minors, but in their minds they were uh, uh, taking advantage of them, and they didn't consider themselves gays because they were acting like the active part of the sexual act. So for me, it was like a really huge confrontation of what's uh, a sort of masculinity in 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 Veracruz in the tropic. I think Brando, the character, represents a lot of what I saw. You know that. Um, uh, um, that's uh, being 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 homosexual is something that's really despised by society. Still, you know, twenty uh, one century, and we still uh, have some people that thought that uh, being homosexual is a bad thing. And even if they feel homosexual desires, they wouldn't identify as homosexuals because they think if they do the active part of the act, they are men. You know, it's like a really phallocentric and really uh, hetero, uh, uh, heteronormado. I don't know how you say that in English. Heteronormative, yeah. A heteronormative, you know, like this division between men and women and that's it, that's the only... And if you are a gay, no, you're a woman also, you know, and woman is always like the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the secondary class person, you know, it's like uh, something that's despicable and... and it, and for me, it was a shock to grow up a woman in a society like that. But I grew up listening and seeing oh, this kind of phenomena. And I guess uh, always a novel is a, is a form of um, trying to integrate, trying to explain to myself why this happens. And it, it is not only uh, trying to, to tell a story, but it's also trying to explain the world, uh, at least for me. And, and Brando, I think, you know, he... He sees, he finds it normal or acceptable if, if you know, the men are using the witch for, for exploitation, uh, you know, to get money from the witch um, through sex, but can't, can't sort of uh, accept his own desires uh, for, for Luis Me, his own homosexual desires. That's it. Uh, and, you know, I thought that was really interesting how it exposes that sort of fiction, I think, of, of that misogyny and of, of those sort of patriarchal uh, structures in the book. Um, the, the, the sort of gender and sexuality of the witch as well is is explored in an interesting way through the book. You know, when she's first introduced, we see her through the eyes of women and, um, you know, who accept her as a woman and then through the eyes of the men who who don't uh, always. And yet that 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 changes kind of throughout the book. Um, how how was that for you to explore and um I guess her her sexuality and her gender also makes her the target of violence um, in the book as well. Yes, of course. And and there is also um, it, what you call a witch in Mexico can be lots of things. In Mexico, you can call a witch a woman who has a great intuition. For example, oh, your aunt Martita just dreamed that you were going to get married. She's such, she's such a witch. Having a lot of intuition make you a wish, or, or for example, um, uh, knowing what kind of herbs to use to make a tea so you can feel better, it's also being a wedge. There's more concepts behind the, the term wedge. And one of those, uh, for, the, for the indigenous conception of wedge, the witches don't have sex or are like a, like a third sex, because a wedge can transform herself into an animal or into a man or could be a man. So I was going to, uh, I was trying to play with that. At first, it's really weird because when I tell the story that I heard, the, the first time I heard about this story was through a news story. Uh, everyone assumed that the, that the witch that was killed was a woman, but in fact, it was a man. It was a man witch. Uh, and I was, uh, I, at first I, I wanted to be a woman witch because for me it was more interesting. No, and I wanted to talk about misogyny, violence against women, so it served me well. But something didn't really, you know, like it didn't work. Something was missing, and I realized that the witch had to have this, you know, like she changes personality through the testimony of each person. Yeah, you know, she's scary and she's mysterious, but then she's totally, you know, a normal person, and she kind of is a little bit of a quack you know sometimes as, as you advance she can be tender for norma 
and 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 the thing about the sex and the gender, I, I wanted it to be also confusing. You know, her appearance is always you you can never tell what's her appearance, right? I I, I wanted to to play with that mystery, and also that's why the witch never talks, because uh, for me it was important to keep that mystery, to 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 keep the witch as a character as a shifting, uh, mysterious character, and at the same time I wanted. I wanted her to be silent because I wanted to respect her story. You know, it's already horrible what happens to her, no? And the end also with the body. So, and it, well, I think it's important to say that I'm not spoiling anything because the novel doesn't really have spoilers. So, I even thought we thought we talk about the murders and the and the and the murderers and the and the victims and it's all already in the book. So, so I, I think this book goes. It's not a typical who done it. He's not a typical who murdered the witch, but more why and how, in what context, I think. I, I think it's very important that, it, I mean, it does start with the body being found, but also the first testimony, in a sense, is from the witch herself. Even if she doesn't speak directly, we we empathize and understand her experience and her story from the beginning before we hear that of, you know, the people that potentially did this violence to her. Uh, so, it you know, it, we start with her. Which and you know the various ways that she's treated and understood uh, within the community, you know, sort of an outcast and but also a figure of, of power uh, who throws these these wild parties and is you know also a, a huge support to the vulnerable um, and part of the a certain community. You know, I think with the the girls on the highway particularly are the ones who come and and joke with her and understand what she's been through. So she she exposes all these different parts of people. Yeah, so if you see, the, 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 the witch begins like a cartoonish character, you know? She's malevolent and, and evil, and she has sex with the devil, you know? Uh, but she she transforms herself in a person. I think what that's what literature does. Uh, also with the billions of the book, uh, they commit an atrocious act, but they are also people who's trapped by their own uh, repression, their own desires, their own sadness, their own lack of love, their own search of love. So, yeah, I think that's that's the, the, the role of literature, to make us close to, to these invented realities, but also they make us close to people that normally we wouldn't even talk to them. And how does this, I mean, relate to, to some of the, the very real issues that are going on, particularly recently in Mexico, the movement um, that has been, you know, growing uh, in, in opposition to the violence against women uh, at this time? Was this happening as you were writing the book? Uh, and how is this sort of, uh, how is this growing? Uh, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, um, actually, when I was writing the book, it began to grow up uh, more and more. I think, of course, social networking has a lot to do now. The communication is now uh, easier than ever, and ideas get uh, transported uh, uh, easily, uh, more easily than, than ever. Um, you know, I was born in the 80s, in 1982, and I grew up in a culture that's, um, you know, machista, really, really uh, misogynist. And for me, it was very difficult to uh, learn to accept that, that feminism is okay. Because the idea I had when I was very young about feminism was that, no, 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 it, it was something like hating men, but I don't hate men, right? Um, I really recognize the, the efforts of the... Uh, uh, older generation of feminists, you know, uh, that does really uh, acknowledge. But at the same time, I thought that feminism had this, uh, this, this negativity, this aura of negativity that fortunately is, been, is beginning to dissipate to, to, a, to, a, to a more, uh, uh, another reality now. And so now girls don't have a problem assuming themselves a feminist, as, as it used to happen when I was a, a girl. And I think it's amazing. It's um, uh, well, you know, last uh, before the pandemics start, we had a we had a um, a strike, a woman's strike in Mexico, the night of March, and it was just uh, horrifying and at the same time impressive and and really emotive to watch the streets devoid of women 
a lot of women, people who you wouldn't even think they will, you know, join the movement, they joined the movement. And even if there were people working, women working, they will, uh, you know, have a button saying that, that they were working because they couldn't uh, strike, but they were doing it anyway. So there was lots of solidarity. And it's a growing thing that I really uh, feel really happy to be uh, witnessing in that, in this area. And really young women, you know, uh, there was, it, there's lots of uh, kinds of um, activism right now. Uh, and as Latin Americans, that kind of unite us. Uh, I, I don't know if you heard about this song that a group in, um, I think it was Chile or Argentina. I don't really remember. I have a terrible memory. Um, but they invented this song that's called the, You Are the Rapist. Uh, to fight against uh, 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 harassment, uh, street harassment, you know. That's a really huge problem here in Latin America. It's really normalized. The, the cat catcalling, they call it also. Okay. I remember being 11 years old, you know, and going to the street and hearing the most horrible things from the mouth of uh, old men, you know, like adult grown-up men telling that to a girl of 11, 12 and Norma's uh, experience was also kind of a, you know, I, I, I never, I never say that that I was sexually abused when I was a child because that never happens to me. But I, I try to incorporate that violence that in 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 a society like this, you you began to feel when you are really young, no? It's, it's and it's in its femicide culture. Even if 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 a guy thinks they're saying something nice to you, because in the mind of some guys. They are being actually nice, but doesn't have anything to do. And it's really hurtful for a woman. So I really, uh, I'm really happy to, to witness this, this movement, this, the, the, the growing of the movement, the, the, the importance of the movement. And it's something that we have to always look after because there's, there's a rise of authoritarianism also. And there's a rise of conservatorism. And if we don't uh, uh, be careful, all these accomplishments, you know, the right of uh, abortion, the right of reproductive rights, the right of a lot of rights, women rights, are going to disappear. I know some people would take it for granted because it's part of our lives now. But, but you know, authoritarianism has a really uh, strange way of, of happening. So, so for me, it's always something we have to look after yeah I, I in ireland obviously we've had some radical changes over the last few years and uh, you know we finally legalized abortion and uh there's a, a great activist um uh, bernadette devlin who speaks about remaining vigilant you know even when these changes feel yeah. like you know we finally got there and and now things will be good you always remain vigilant because there is always that potential for things to be rolled back. I mean, we look at the situation in the U.S. where, you know, there is a huge threat to reproductive rights now. Um, and I think hurricane season is it, it addresses as well the intersectionality of, you know, movements and, and of rights. I think, you know, you you tackle misogyny, homophobia and also racism um, to an extent. There's several instances in the book where, you know, um, there are sort of this this uh, discrimination on the basis of race from Luis Mies sort of nose, his features uh, described in a negative way or Brando's um, relationship. Um, so that was something that I think is addressed in the inter intersectionality of, of that violence. Well, well, Mexico is a super racist country and I don't think it's something uh, most Mexicans will recognize uh, or will acknowledge because, uh, well, we have in our mythical past this, uh, um, this hybrid of cultures, you know? So we always say that the Mexicans, we are the race of bronze. We are the race of, a, you know, mix, but at the same time, it is a, a very racist country where the color of the skin, uh, as darker it is, it, it gives you less and less uh, opportunities of uh, social uh, improvement. And uh, I have talked to many people, uh, for example, African-Americans who go to Mexico and are, you know, look with really curiosity and not in a very nice way because so it's really strange that we Mexicans don't consider ourselves to be racist, but in fact, there is a really classist and, 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 and racist uh, kind of society. 
and we need to address those uh, those those uh, th that conversation. I think that's what literature works also uh, to to name things and break the silence because in silence uh, atrocities ha can happen, and if we address them, is is always a, a, a first step to beginning a conversation and a change. And I think, you know, it's a definitely a colonial structure as well, you know, as we have an, yeah, uh, experienced in Ireland as well. We're, we're asking every writer through this series uh, what freedom means to them in this moment. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, I was thinking about this, uh, the, the things we've been talking about and how, uh, I don't know if that happens in Ireland because uh, Mexico is a really vast country, enormous and uh, uh, very differentiate so actually there's like lots of Mexicos and not only one Mexico right and I think that now uh, in the lockup in the quarantine uh, in in lots of these Mexicos m women right now are are being abused no by parents by husbands by fathers by uh, employers by the health system and uh, the freedom that I as a writer enjoy, you know, by living in a peaceful life, surrounded by, you know, books and being able to, to develop myself by, by writing a new novel and, and having a peaceful relationship with a partner that's loving and respectful. I think it's something that I wish that more women in Mexico and in the world, of course, could take for granted also, no? What, what, what for me freedom is being able to dedicate myself to my art I wish more women had that that access to that to that freedom also. And is there anything you're reading or listening to at the moment that you would recommend? Ah, uh, yeah, I read. Well, well, this is amazing. It, it's called The Savage Boys by William Burroughs. I love William Burroughs. You know, he's so weird. But this is like one of his uh, unknown books, less known because Junkie and uh, the the Naked Lunch is like the most uh, known books. And I, I read, um, uh, I've been reading a lot in Spanish, Álvaro Mutis and uh, José Emilio Pacheco, that wouldn't work. Uh, there's a writer called Mariana Enríquez. Uh, she's Argentinian, and there's uh, English translation of her books. She writes horror stories. She's totally amazing, you know, because she mixes, like, the traditional horror story with the actual political, social conditions of uh, nowadays uh, Latin America. So oof, it's, it's magnificent. Everything that you can find about uh, Mariana Enriquez, go and read them because she's amazing. And I read Big Brother by Lionel Shriver also. I, I tend to read a lot of Americans, I think. Well, thank you so much, Fernanda. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and very excited to see, uh, read the new novel when it comes out, <laughs> hopefully soon. Well, thank you. It's, be, it's been great. Thank you. Fernanda Melchor's book, Hurricane Season, is available now through our festival bookseller, The Gutter Bookshop. Next episode, we'll be speaking with Esther Safran Foer, author of the powerful memoir, I Want You to Know We're Still Here. Thanks for listening in and thanks to our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council.